Open your Bibles with you, if you would, to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Second Timothy chapter 3. We'll be looking at an assortment of verses, so keep your Bible open if you would. Continuing in our series, talking about a scary church. And in my opinion, a scary church is a church full of people that have an unguided faith. You can believe in Jesus, and that's enough to be saved. But that does not mean your Christian life will be Christian, does it? We've all seen those people who got saved at a revival event or had kind of an emotional experience and their life never changes. And sometimes they attend a church and, and that's okay. Nothing ever changes and they go through this roller coaster of life. And the scary thing is that some churches allow that to happen, not because they have power, but the church has a great teaching responsibility. So when Terry or Pat or some other teacher, Maxine for instance, gets up and teaches scripture, what they're doing is their job. Not just to fill the time, but to teach you how to live. So we're going to talk about the dangers of an unguided faith and why a church that doesn't do its job can be kind of scary. As always, we begin with prayer. And we mention Mike Hart, who's just recovering from surgery, and Dave Brown, who's going to have surgery tomorrow, and others who are going through difficult experiences in life, we pray for them. We pray that God can work and heal. We pray for our nation. I dread the election season, as do you, for all sorts of reasons. Bad commercials, annoying commentators, trying not to throw books at your TV, etc., etc. But we are in that season, so let's pray for guidance and discernment, shall we? Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this life we have. We are wealthy. Thank you. We hear of the news in all parts of the world of the unrest and the fear and the terror and destruction. And we live relatively unscathed in this great nation you've established. Thank you. Father, we ask for mercy because in our isolation, we sometimes are unconcerned. Forgive us. We haven't used our great powers as a tool for good as much as we could. We ask for mercy. We ask, Father, that you would be gracious to us and forgive us of our sin. We're sinful people, even at our best. We are tainted. Forgive us for our sin, for our lust and desires, our selfishness our careless words, the biases we have against groups. Forgive us, Father. Help us in this process of repentance and healing that we might become the people you can use. We pray for this church and others that we might do your work of the kingdom on this earth. Help us to be those shining lights that you desire, that people need. We pray for our leaders, those elected and unelected people with power over us, that you would give them wisdom and discernment and self-control. 
Help them to choose their words wisely. We know words have meaning and impact. We pray, Father, in this election season for discernment in your will. As always, we pray for our soldiers, first responders, and others that work in the business of serving others. Bless them, protect them, use their efforts to save lives and make a difference. And Father, as we begin to see our soldiers deployed all over the world, we ask for protection for them. Give them wisdom and discernment and restraint in their use of power. Protect them, Father. All over the world, there is a spirit of war and unrest. Help us. Father, we thank you. You bless us and you love us. And we follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In my garage, I have a, a big cabinet with several drawers. Tammy says it's full of trash. And I bite my tongue. I have service manuals from every vehicle I've ever owned. And some I haven't owned. I have a service manual for a 53 Chrysler, and no, it's not for sale. Now, I say that because a couple of decades ago, I mentioned this Chrysler repair manual for a 1953 Chrysler, and it was just one of those general factory repair manuals, and Leon, you remember these. They're kind of for everything for made in that year, and there were a lot of similarities. And after the service was over, one of my deacons came up, Kevin, I need that manual. Can I have it? I said, no, you can't have it. He said, can I borrow it? I said, if you promise to get it back to me. And he hesitated because he wanted to steal it from me. He said, okay. And so I kept asking him several weeks, when do I get it back, Bill? And he finally got it back to me. I don't cherish those manuals, but I protect them. Because not only do they give me great pleasure, I read them even for the book cards I don't have anymore. They're just, they just bring me pleasure and they keep me from doing dumb things. Let me explain. I just bought a pickup a few weeks ago, nice pickup, Toyota, whatever, and uh, it did not come with the manual because the guy didn't value it and he threw it away, which I don't understand. And I looked at the truck and I generally like the manuals that come with the factory manuals. He had the little booklet that came in the glove box and I read that through, spent a day with that in my truck, you know, in the cab, reading that manual, going through it. And then I came to the stereo system and it's got one of those newfangled, push-button, deleted stereos. It's just a TV screen, and that's all it is. And it took me a long time to figure out how to turn it on, because there's no buttons. You know the type, right? Some of you with new cars know you have that. So I pulled out the manual that was in there, and then the words came to me. He said, oh yeah, that's not the factory radio. I replaced it with a better one. And I remember cringing. I said, well, where's the manual? He goes, oh, I don't know. I threw it away. And I said, okay. Bought the truck anyway. Dumb me. So anyway, I went online. He said, you can get it all online. Don't worry about that. Well, that is a curse. And some of you know this. I know I've got some, some spirits here that are with me because I've heard you talk. And when they say the manual is online, that means good luck. And he said that. So I sat in the car one day and it took me a couple of hours to figure out how to turn it on and off. Because when it's off... There's nothing there, right? But somehow, 
you can activate it. And I'm still not sure of that. So I never turn it off now. I turn it down, but I never turn it off because I'm not sure I could turn it back on. So anyway, I went online and found the operator's manual and it was at least six or seven minutes long and showed me how to turn it on sometimes and the volume and all the simple things, but not all this other stuff. And I, for the life of me, I don't know what to do. So on a twi two occasions now, I've gotten it set up just like I wanted. And I adjusted the sound controls where there's enough bass and treble and all those kinds of things. And, and uh, I still haven't got the presets figured out. There's a way to do it, but I don't know how to do it. So every time I get it on, I can't find the right channel and I have to go through that nonsense. But at least the, sound, the music sounds like I want it to sound. Unless I do something and then the music doesn't sound like I want it to sound. And I have to go through this rigmarole every time. And I have to figure it all out again. And I cannot keep it straight. And some of you know what I'm talking about. And you understand the frustration. Now my son-in-laws, young techies, they just roll their eyes when I tell them this story. And they come in and sit with me in the cab, and yes, we do that. And they explain to me how to work it, and they can't do it either. And that's a scary thing. So, this manual that I'm going to find someday will not only tell me how to do things, it will tell me what to avoid. Because sometimes, when I get it set up just right, I do something, and I delete those instructions, and it goes back to default. Whatever that is, whatever some guy probably in Tokyo decided was the default setting. So I thought about that in my pile of manuals. I find great comfort in a book that says turn to page 176 C4 and you get explicit instructions. That gives me great comfort and it also helps me to know what to do to do what I want and helps me to know what to avoid. You know where I'm going with this don't you? Don't you wish you had a book like that for your life? Where before the fact, you could find out the best way to react in any given situation. And before the fact, you can learn what not to do. Well, centuries ago, there was such a book written. I'm talking about scripture, of course. And today when we read in 2 Timothy chapter, four, chapter 3, Paul is teaching a very young pastor. He's saved right out of school, which means Paul had tutored him some. He's a pastor at a church that Paul had started and had a significant investment in. And Timothy was having troubles. He was in a normal church actually. And the church was just like every church. Full of good people who mean well but didn't have a clue out how to live. And you got to remember before there was the New Testament and before the Old Testament was formed and distributed people kind of did whatever. And there were preachers around but they weren't all Christian. And everybody in the church was a recent convert. There weren't second and third generation Christians probably. There were a few oldsters that had been Christians for a couple of decades. But most people were recent in just the last few years. And they didn't have a collected New Testament. So they didn't know what to do or how to do it or how to avoid those things that would lead them away from Christ. But they meant well. And so people filled in the gaps. So, Paul, wanting to help this young preacher, wrote this book, First and Second Timothy and others, Titus and some others like that. So follow along with me if you would. In Second Timothy chapter 3, I'll read the first five verses, and then verses 14 and through 17. 2 Timothy 3, the first five verses. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. 
For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revelers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. Now drop down to read verses 14 through 17 with me. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So that last phrase, the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work, uh, you know, they... That preposition means everybody, not just men. It meant everybody, and they understood that. And there was a purpose. Not just so people could do their own thing and avoid trouble. That's part of it. But that so people could be used by God for every good work. So the whole goal of this teaching enterprise of the church is to teach you and to guide you, not only in living your life in a godly fashion, but living a life that God can use. So that's one of the primary goals of everything we do in this church. Number one is evangelism. People need Jesus. They need to be saved. And then after that, they need to grow in the faith. They need to develop. They need to get the manual out, in other words. It's one thing for me to buy my truck and have that radio. It's another thing for me to buy that truck, have that radio, and be able to turn it on and off at the right times, right? So I'm training you how to turn on the radio and do something correctly with it. And that's what this church does when Terry talks, when Maxine talks, when Pat talks. That's what they're doing is training Christians how to live, and how to be useful to God. So we're going to talk about some of those things today. And sometimes you will encounter Christians who don't seem to have been taught anything. And that's where we get into a scary church. Because on screen is this idea that an unguided faith is a faith that lacks guidance from God's word. Now the reason this is important, because most people when they get saved are very sincere. Yes, I follow Jesus. Yes, I'm saved. Yes, I'm going to turn from sin. But if that's all they know, they don't know what to do after that. I mean, it's one thing to get saved and have an emotional experience and get baptized. That's a great thing. But that's only the beginning. And sometimes it's quite clear that people haven't gotten any farther than that. And sometimes that's a failure of a scary church. A scary church that doesn't seem to train anybody in any fashion. And by the way, that's why we have Sunday school and Bible studies and we use the scripture in sermon because we're trying to fulfill that mission of training up Christians. So in our passage, Paul talks to this young pastor. And by the way, you need to remember that when Paul wrote this to Timothy, it was because he had heard what a mess was going on where Timothy was. Probably Ephesus. And he didn't know what to do. Because he was a young buck just trying to figure out how to be a good pastor. He was sincere. He was intelligent. And not fully trained. Remember, they did not have the New Testament. And so Paul wrote, so he could teach Timothy. So he could teach, so Timothy could teach his people. Because Paul knew, Timothy, I hear you got a mess going on. And it wasn't Timothy's fault, it's just people. 
And so he was teaching him, this is what you got to do. So he talks about all these things in our passage in, in the first four verses. You know, he talks about things like this. And we'll just mention, lovers of money without self-control, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, etc., etc. They'll go from bad to worse, deceived and being deceived. And he's talking about us, isn't he? And not just us in this congregation, but, but the larger world. This is the world. Read the news. Read history. They would get drunk. They would fight. They would smoke pot or hash or whatever they could find. And there was no teaching against any of those things. And the lifestyle it would produce is exactly what you expect. Read through the Old Testament restrictions. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. The reason they were taught that is because they were doing that. That's why. God wasn't anticipating their sin. He was teaching them. Listen, what you're doing is wrong. You've got to get your act together. Now, we're smart today. We're very sophisticated and cultured. And this is why this morning, the praise team was having this conversation about people that were at the Chiefs game last week without their clothes. And there were many who were so lubricated and drunk out of their gourd, of course, and excited in letting their emotions get together with them that they took off their clothes, not naked as far as I know, but they took off their clothes in three or four below weather. And there were, well, how many... 16, 18 cases of frostbite from people that were at the football game. The word revelers is there. Drunk people, being stupid drunk people. And in front of God and everybody, for the sake of the team, were destroying their health. Paul would say, stop, you numbskulls. That's not a Christian thing. You see, it's not just silliness. It's ungodly. Because you're abusing your own flesh. And you're ignoring... This idea of decency and self-control and all those kinds of things. So when he talks about these people doing these things, he's not talking about the bad people, is he? He's talking about people. Those people at the Chiefs game that got drunk and, and froze their cookies, they weren't bad people. They just got drunk and got frozen. And they were good people. And they went home and their wife said, I can't believe you, idiot. Right? And their kids were embarrassed. So, we're not so much above that. You know, we like to think, well, people don't do that anymore. You know, when he, we read those lovers of money, no self-control, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, we're talking about us, aren't we? Not just individually, but collectively. Humanity needs to be taught. And Christians... We are one of the few organizations that gather for the explicit purpose of teaching good behavior. There aren't many places that people get taught good behavior after they grow up. And I know a lot of the burden has been put on to school teachers, which is an unfair burden. But that's the way it is. That's why teachers sometimes do things that it doesn't seem like it makes a whole lot of sense, but there's a reason for it. And we have to support them there because someone's got to teach these kids because sometimes parents aren't. And it just makes their job harder, I understand. So, Timothy tells these, this young pastor, listen, you got to train these folks. He does not condemn them all to hell, does he? He just acknowledges these are people that need to be taught. So he talks about the scriptures and the sacred writings. So on screen, some things about the sacred writings. And he's talking about scripture the Old Testament and some of what Paul's put in together and the scriptures that they know will be eventually collected. Those are inspired by God, which means 
God is helping people to understand. So God is impressing them on people the truth and he enables them to write and guides them and what they put together and that whole process of scripture is a process that God ordains and uses and so it's good for us to understand that the Bibles we carry is the inspired word of God which means God breathed it. He helped people. He allowed people to understand. He motivated them to write it down and he guided them from factual error in what they taught and so we have to understand that and accept it and you know it's a fascinating process but God took took his time over about a thousand years got these writings together over literally dozens of different authors many of whom never met the others lived in totally different historical eras and then used scholarship centuries departed to get it all together and they even were so diligent that sometimes the scholars had this recommendation from a king or whomever, King James for instance, to go back and, and make sure everything's translated correctly. And by the way, make sure you use the best text, the best copies and do all that. And they would go backwards and work backwards for several hundred years to find the, the best text the most original text that was probably closest to what God wanted said. And they would put that together. And that's what you carry. And so uh, just accept it as God's word. Inspired. God let them. It teaches and corrects. Like I said, there aren't many places you can go where you're going to get taught how to handle your money. If your mom and daddy didn't teach you how to handle money, you're probably not going to do a very good job. But you can go to church and in a good church you're taught avoid debt when you can don't spend more than you have give part of what you have back to God out of service to him and his kingdom and uh, you know all those kinds of things live within your means and all those very casual but profoundly life-changing biblical principles if someone ever says the Bible isn't very practical say oh yeah pull your billfold out let me talk about what the Bible teaches because it is a life-changing thing when you learn to handle your money the way God wants you to. It is life changing. It is life changing when you learn how to treat your spouse the way God wants you to. With respect and courtesy and no violence and watch your mouth and all those things and, and love this person and treat them like you love them and treat your kids like you love them. And those are life changing principles. And when scripture is allowed to teach and and is used to teach people how to live their lives are better and their families are better and they turn out better it's amazing and equips us for God's service like I said this is one of the purposes God wants us to work he wants you to visit your friends who are in the hospital he wants you to visit people who need Jesus he wants you to be gracious and kind to people you encounter to represent the faith he wants you to share what you have with others. To give money to the church, yes. But also to give money to people. Yes, some of your precious money. Give it to people who need it. You know, it's one thing to give money to God's kingdom. Through the church and things like that. And that's good. And you need to do that by That's the whole idea of a tithe. And that's one of the things that we practice here. But that's not necessarily enough, is it? Because you can tithe at church. And your neighbor still may be hungry. We have families in our child care. We help them stay in their home. We help them pay their utility bill because they can't. And 
there are many families that are connected with our child care. And, and really, I, I think without the money you give them, they would be destitute and living in their car. Because that's where they were when they came here. And so, don't ever begrudge when preachers and claims are made for ministry because it costs. And we won't waste your money. And we have to do that. And that's one of the things that God wants us to do. And uh, strangely enough, there aren't many organizations that are really very effective at teaching people to share what they have with others. The church is one of those organizations. This whole idea of charity, that's a very Christian thing in history. The idea of supporting the poor and helping those who are hungry. There were non-Christian groups that did that, but the church has made that normal behavior for good and decent people. In Western civilization, we have this idea of sharing. That's a Christian value that comes right out of the Bible. So it, it's a life-changing thing. It, it shapes culture. You know, there are so many things that Scripture teaches us that just make us different. And this is why Paul wrote what he wrote, so Timothy could teach it. One of the other things on screen is this idea that when you have an unguided faith, you walk away from a life that serves and honors God. Read this passage with me. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Paul wanted Timothy to understand that sometimes if you're teaching God's word, you kind of got in people's kind of got to get in people's business. It's one thing for you to be taught and accept teaching. Sometimes though, you need to kind of insert yourself in other people's lives and instruct them. Now that doesn't mean lecture or nag. It just means sometimes you need to help people understand there's a better way. And it's hard. Not everybody wants to learn it. You know, there is a better way than just living however. There's a better way than throwing your money away. There's a better way than, than drinking your money and, and those kinds of things. And those are obvious examples. But there's so many ways that you can help. You know, if you have a young family in your greater family and somebody is beginning to do things that are destructive, it may be your responsibility to talk to them. Not to attack them, but to say, you know, there, there's a better way. Let me help you. That's okay. It may not be your business, but that's okay. On screen are some things, typical things that are very biblical, but are life-changing. One of the things we can do is treat people with the understanding that they are all part of God's creation. Now, there's a thought. Here's the biblical message. Red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. The old children's song. It's absolutely right. Genesis 1 through 3. We are all God's people. God's creation. Image of God. I tell you this over and over. I hope you'll get it. It took me decades to get it. Whenever I encounter someone that is obviously a train wreck, I tell myself, creation of God, creation of God, creation of God, before I open my mouth, so I don't say my first reaction. What I want to say is something affirming and encouraging and helpful and just get involved there and not respond to them the way it's easy and not be disgusted with them because, you know, some of these people that are train wrecks, they're really pretty good folk. They're just train wrecks. And you know what I'm talking about. 
their body. They just can't get it together. And what they need isn't for someone to tell them your life's a wreck. They know that, by the way. I was talking to one of my neighbors decades ago. It's been quite a while. He was a great guy. He was an alcoholic, problem with his family. When he was sober, he was the best guy. When he and his wife were sober, they were the best couple who did well, worked well, made good money, treated their kids as good as they could when they were sober. And he came to me one night and said, Kev, we're having problems and I, I need to talk. So I know. It was in the middle, of, it's always in the middle of the night. So he drove me over there and went to his house and he and his wife had been fighting for several hours and I got to get in on that after several hours of excitement. And, and it was a mess. And they were train wrecks and they, they invited me in. Kevin, you're a preacher, what are we supposed to do? And so I went through and I talked to them about, you know, well, you know, it's obvious that you're both drunk, right? Well, yeah, we've been drinking. I said, well, how long you been drinking? Well, it was two in the morning, uh, since about four in the afternoon. Well, they were beyond drinking. I said, okay, this is one of those things where when you're drunk like this, and they smiled, yeah, you know. And I said, when you're like this, you can't have a rational conversation. You're too emotional. You don't have self-control. You say things you don't want and you don't mean, and then you have to apologize and you can't even keep track of it. And they looked at each other and goes, well, yeah, that's right. And we had that conversation we went for a couple hours. And I didn't think I got anywhere with them because they were drunk. And, you know, and I try not to do much counseling with drunk people because, you know, they're drunk. But weeks later he came, late at night again, to Kevin, me and my wife were just talking. We just want to thank you. You saved our marriage. I said, really? <laughs> um, and all I did, I didn't give him anything Special is just simple biblical teachings. Get your mouth under control. Treat each other like you like each other. When you can, don't scream. Just basic stuff. Kept our marriage together. The last time I talked to him, several years after that, they were still together. Doing okay. Don't ever assume that people have been taught. They hadn't been. So there are some things that people need. They need to be taught. Love each other. Treat each other like you want to be treated. Those are basic things, but not everybody knows them. Practice a biblical morality. This is where you get your sexuality under control. This is where you get your impulses under control. This is where you get your understandings of how to relate to each other under control. You know, all those biblical teachings, and I don't have to spell them out. You know them. It's really very simple. You know, control these impulses. You can't just go and do whatever. You're going to get yourself in trouble. And there's this whole idea of male and female and the differences therein. That's biblical teaching. That's not white bigotry. That's biblical teaching. You know, we're in a culture now that is so confused, we're not even sure that there's male and female. You know, we have Supreme Court justice that can't define woman. We have scholars who, can't, who negate the differences between male and female, and so on and so forth. You know, we're in a culture that's really struggling on the area of gender truth and all those kinds of things. The Bible's very clear, and the church needs to be clear. Not mean-spirited, not attacking, but gracious and kind. We think there's a better way, and say it that way, and stick to it. Interestingly enough, some of this confusion in our culture is right now being rejected in European culture. 
the things that we're talking about now with confusion about gender and all that, we're about 30 years behind Europe. I don't know if you knew that or not, but now Europe has worked through this for 30 years and they're beginning to realize, you know, there is a, a trap in that kind of thinking. And they're beginning to shift on a scholarly level and on a governmental level away from this confusion of the genders. And they're going back to, there are men and women. Pretty amazing. Biblical teaching makes a difference. And again, I'm not talking about tearing people down and attacking groups and all that stuff. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about just Christians learning biblical truth and applying that to life. And then this whole thing of stewardship of life where God wants you to be responsible with what you have, what you've been given. My kids got really tired of me when they were, from the early on, uh, my kids were very bright. And I said, listen, you, your brain is a gift. You can obviously think and you can learn. I said, God wants you to develop it and use it. And they said it so much that I know they rolled their eyes at me because I saw them, you know, that thing, dad, shut up. You know, one of those things. And still, and now I hear myself saying that to my grandkids. Your brain, your mind is a gift. And I'm, I hear myself repeating this. Do not let your emotions determine the course of your life. Think and allow your mind that God has given you to determine the course of your life, not your emotions. But I feel, I know, ignore your feelings. You know, we're taught in this culture to follow your heart. Absolute nonsense. Follow your mind. Your heart gives you some guidance. The emotions I'm talking about. And they're important. But... Use the brain God has given you. And that's good stewardship of life. And those are the kinds of things that can change life. And one of those things that came out of biblical teaching was the Reformation. Which was, guess what? Think about life. And instead of just feeling, think. And think clearly and methodically and do those kinds of things. Because when you do that, your life gets better. On screen is this final idea. An unguided faith can get you into trouble or keep you from walking closely with God. His, God's guidance through his word and spirit can bring his blessings upon us. So, a dangerous church is a church that never teaches you. A dangerous Sunday school class is a church that never, cha teacher that never challenges you. Who never says anything that makes you think. So, our goal here, and I, I know I speak for the pet teachers I know of. That they want to teach the truth. And they want people to understand. They want their lives to get better. So we do that here. And other churches do the same. Not all churches, of course. But a good church. When people say, well, Kevin, where's a good church? I said, well, I got a, a few ideas. You know, and they often don't mean they're big. But they are biblically based and good at teaching. Unfortunately, my daughters go to good churches. that They teach scripture. I'm surprised. Because I hear so much about bad churches, the scary churches. But my kids, my grandkids are learning things like tithing and giving money to the church. And they're learning things about be careful who you date. And they're learning things about how to act. How not to just feel your way through life. Good churches. Very biblically based churches. So when you hear a preacher or something and he says something that he says out of the scripture, test it against scripture. It's okay to ask questions. But when you discern that something you've been taught is biblical, it is what God wants you to do, just understand that that is the very best for you. A church that does its job 
is a great church. I had a mentor years ago. I was part of the educational process. I had to meet with this guy for a whole year every week. He was a great guy. He had been a, a missionary in the Asian countries and uh, was on faculty at the University of uh, Taiwan. And uh, just a great guy. And he said that. And I remember him saying it the first time. He said, every church is a great church. Every church that represents the gospel is a great church. And at that time, I was thinking every church that's big is a great church. And he beat through my thick skull. No, if you're teaching the gospel and you're teaching people scripture, that's a great church. And you're changing lives. In scripture, we have a record of Jesus teaching us, when you get together, share this meal. When you share this meal, remember who you are. You're, you're God's people, followers of Jesus. Followers of me, he said. He said, when you eat bread, let it remind you of my flesh, which is shed for you. When you drink wine, it is my blood, which I will lose today. And Jesus did that so he would remind us, so this act would remind us that we follow crucified and resurrected Jesus. We're not just good people learning how to live good lives. That's part of it. But we're people who follow Jesus, the resurrected Christ. And we're allowing him to change us and teach us. I'm going to ask that the deacons come forward and get in their place today. And you know how we do this here. It's very casual. If you follow Jesus, we invite you as part of this. It reminds you of who you are. If you're thinking about following Jesus, we invite you to join us and invite you to follow Jesus as Savior. The cups, you know the problem with the cups. If you can't open them yourself, that's okay. Find someone who can help you. And so look around. Those of you who are good at it, look around. And if you see someone struggling, just walk over and help them. That's a good thing. Won't you stand with me? Pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your teachings that change our lives, for our gospel that gives us a new start. We pray, Father, that as we take this meal, we would be reminded of the Christ that we follow and encouraged to live the life that will honor him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would y'all come forward, please? So Paul got the message about this first supper. He says this, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He continues the story. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And after quoting Jesus, Paul finishes, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So that old story of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus is central. It's what changes this from self-help to God-help. Self-help is you reading books and trying to make yourself do the right thing. God-help is where you ask God. You open your life to his influence and you allow him to work. And this emphasis on 
crucified and resurrected Christ is what makes this a divine thing. It's what changes our lives. It's going to lead us in a closing hymn of invitation. Why don't you stand with me? Make those decisions that allow Jesus to have first place in your life. If you have something to make public, you can do that. Stand with me, please, Nate. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all of the ground is sinking sand, all of the ground is sinking sand. Thank you, Nate. Thank you for coming out today. I know the weather's miserable, but we're glad you came today. Remember that next week we'll have a deacon's meeting at 8.30 and then a business meeting in place of Bible study next Sunday morning at 9.30 up in the fire, fire shed room. You're all invited for that. And they'll be talking about some things. And, uh, and then we'll have worship. Dave, why don't you come and lead us, please? Lord God, we thank you for this message today and we ask that you place it on our hearts that we may serve you and serve others be with us this week as we look for opportunities for those. Thank you again for being with us and blessing us and guiding and directing us in our thoughts and our actions. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.